Hey there, I'm your host, Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast dedicated to recovering authentic Christianity and living it out today. We're in part three of our Why Christianity class, and we're beginning to transition to the part of the class where we give positive evidence for some of the things that we as Christians believe. So, for example, today our topic is how do you know God is real? What sorts of evidence would you marshal to make the case for God's existence if somebody asked you? It won't do to tell skeptics you believe in God because you've always believed in him, because you were raised to believe in him, or because the Bible says so. In this episode, you'll learn six main lines of evidence for God's existence to equip you to have meaningful conversations with your secular friends, co-workers, and relatives. Here now is episode 390, Why Christianity Part 3, God is Real. Question, how do you know the sun exists? Do you see the sun right now? Wikipedia. Wikipedia. <laughs> there you go. Well, we believe in object permanence, so we believe the sun is still there even when we can't see it, right? What about gravity? How do we know gravity exists? Have you ever seen gravity? No, but we've seen its effects. How do you know Homer existed? Have you ever met Homer, the poet? Do you have a photograph of him? There were no cameras in his time. But we have his writings, the Iliad, the Odyssey, and others refer to Homer. So that's how we know Homer exists. Or what about the aardvark? Have you ever seen an aardvark? How do you know this photograph is really what an aardvark looks like? Or the Mariana Trench? How do you know that that's really there? I mean, there are all kinds of things that we believe in and that we just know, sort of factually, that exist that we haven't ever actually seen ourselves. And how do we figure out that something exists? Well, personal experience, the testimony of others, logic, scientific experiments. There are a lot of different reasons, but one reason that I would say is that is a very bad reason is circular reasoning. So if you start with the question, how do you know the Bible is true, and you answer it by saying, God wrote it, the next question immediately comes forward is, how do you know God wrote it? And then if you answer, the Bible says God wrote it, we have returned to where we started. How do you know the Bible is true? This is the worst form of argumentation. It just goes in a circle. It doesn't actually prove anything. And I think we can do a lot better in the question of God's existence. And so what I'd like to do with you tonight is look at six reasons for God's existence, apart from the Bible. We're going to look at the Bible later in this class, Why Christianity. But we, I want to show you six reasons. And when you live in a society where everyone already believes in God, you don't, you don't need lots of reasons for God's existence, do you? But we live in a time where God's belief in God and faith in general is contested. And so I believe that you need to be equipped to be able to give good reasons and answers to people when they ask the God question, or when they ask you, why do you believe in any of that stuff anyhow? And so that's what I hope to be able to do with you. I want to look at these six reasons, the beginning of the universe, the fine-tuning of the universe for life, DNA code, moral absolutes, miracles, 
and personal experience. Some of these I have a little bit more on than others. I'm just going to give a brief overview on these subjects. I could easily do an hour on each one or more, but I just want to show you the basic case and the understanding behind it. So the first one is the beginning of the universe, also known as the Kalam cosmological argument. How do you know that God exists based on the beginning of the universe? It goes something like this. Number one, everything that has a beginning has a cause of its beginning. Premise number two, the universe has a beginning. Conclusion, therefore, the universe has an external cause of its beginning. And I say it's external because the universe didn't exist at the moment it began. Just like an apple didn't exist at the moment it began, or anything, right? So everything that has a beginning has a cause of its beginning. The universe has a beginning, therefore the universe needs a beginner. And that cause, whatever caused the universe, must be uncaused itself, an eternal immaterial, capable of existing without time, and immensely powerful. Otherwise, it wouldn't be able to bring the universe into existence. And we have this Latin saying, I don't know if you've ever encountered it before, but ex nihilo nihil fit, which translates, out of nothing, nothing comes. Think about that for a second. We don't believe in the, in the, in the sort of universe where things just pop into existence out of nowhere, do we? We believe that they, they, there's got to be some source for something to, to come into existence. It doesn't just come on its own. So is there something now? Yes, there, something exists now. Right? We might be able to disagree on how we describe that, but you exist, I exist, this podium exists, right? Something exists now. Therefore, as, as a result of that, there must have always been something in existence because if there was at any time absolutely nothing, there could only be nothing now. Right? This, this is a basic principle of logic. Now, we do know that the universe had a beginning. And so the universe must have an origin. It must have come from somewhere. So you need something other than the universe to exist, capable of bringing the universe into existence. What would that be? I mean, that leads directly to God. I, mem I remember sitting across the table in a restaurant with an atheist friend who says to me, I just can't find a way out of the cosmological argument for God's existence, this idea of the universe needing a beginning. And, and, and I said, my friend, you're not an atheist. And he said to me, I know. <laughs> so he wasn't happy about it, but he just recognized the power of the logic that you really did need a beginning. Let's say you're out in the woods. This is an example William Lane Craig uses. Let's say you're out in the woods and suddenly you hear a loud bang. And you turn to the person next to you and you say, what made that bang? And the person said, nothing. Nothing. Nothing made that bang. Who would accept that answer? And so William Lane Craig asked the question, what's true of the little bang is true of the big bang. The guy uh, who coined the term big bang was coining that term to make fun of the idea because... He knew it led to the belief in God's existence. If there was a definitive beginning to the universe, and so it was actually an atheist that, that coined the phrase Big Bang in order to make fun of the idea. Um, and then they ended up all believing in it. Let's look at number two here. Fine-tuning for life. Fine-tuning for life. 
The universe has initial conditions for how everything eventually turned out to be the way that it is. There are dozens of constants that are supplied as the initial conditions of the universe. So I'll give you some examples. There's the gravitational force. I have an equation here for gravity. This is the basic gravitational equation. That big G in the equation is the gravitational constant. It doesn't change no matter what bodies we're talking about. If we want to know how much force due to gravity do you experience on Earth here, we put you in for M1 here, okay, your mass, and then we put the Earth's mass in for M2, and then however far you are from the center of the Earth is R, and we square that number and we calculate it out, that's the force you feel due to gravity. And this, this equation works anywhere in the universe, you know, between any two bodies, whether they're the same size or one's big and one's small. And no matter what kind of body we're measuring, G is always the same. It's, that's why we call it a constant. And the question is, why is G this particular number? And uh, the answer is, there is no reason why. There's no law of physics that's forcing G to be this number or any number of other constants. Like, for example, the electromagnetic force, the weak force, the strong force, the cosmological constant, the proportion of electrons and protons masses to the mass of a neutron in the atom itself. All of these numbers are just sort of set at a certain value, and they could have been otherwise. And if they were otherwise, by even just a small bit, life could not exist. Complex life could not exist. Intelligent life could not exist. For example, this, this letter G here. If it's off by one part in 10 to the 60th power, you can't have life. Think about it for a moment. If gravity is stronger, right, we all get squished into the earth, uh, and, and lots, lots of things would change. If it was just a little bit weaker, then you have other major problems in the universe. And they've, they've calculated this fine little narrow band where life is possible, and it's one part in 10 to the 60th. And they, ha they do the same thing for the cosmological constant, which measures how fast the universe is expanding. They say that's finely tuned to one part in 10 to the 120th. So here's the reasoning. Premise one, our universe is finely tuned for the existence of complex life. Premise two, this fine tuning is not the result of physical laws. Conclusion, therefore, a supernatural fine tuner exists. Now, there is another possibility other than God's existence to explain the fine-tuning of the universe. It could have just happened by chance. Roger Penrose said that the odds of the universe having the right proportion of mass and energy is one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd power. Now, this is a number that I've been wrestling with and uh, generating an Excel spreadsheet to just sort of like figure out, okay, because it's somewhat unusual to have an exponent to another exponent. Those of you who do math, I mean, it's not a normal move. This is what Penrose says. He's, uh, he's at Oxford. He says, even if we were to write a zero, you know, like if you write out a number, you put a one and you put all these zeros, okay? If you want to put a zero on each separate proton and on each separate neutron in the entire universe, and we could throw in all the other particles as well. For good measure, we should fall far short of writing down the figure needed. The, the chances of the universe popping into existence with the right proportions that we need of mass and energy, and these, as well as these other constants, right? The chances of it happening are so small that you literally 
literally could not write the number down. You couldn't even write the number down. If you used all the protons and particles in all the world, you couldn't even write the number down at how unlikely it is. Let me just think about it like this. In New York State, the chances of being struck by lightning in a year is, according to 2011, one in about four million. Okay, so if you got struck by lightning this year, it'd be one in four million. And then if you got struck by lightning again next year, now it's one in 16 million. Okay, so let's say John gets struck by lightning. Sorry, John. And this is not this is not assuming you work on like telephone poles or something. This is just a random chance of getting struck by lightning. So he gets struck by lightning once. We're like, oh, John, you know that's that's just awful. You know, I'm so glad you survived. You know, we move on with life. The next year, boom, it happens again. Struck by lightning a second time. Like, John, what what are you doing? It, it would be, become, some, I mean, assuming he was okay, it would become somewhat of a joke, like this guy gets struck by lightning. What do we do at three times? Three years in a row, John gets struck by lightning. What do we do at four times? We start to say something like, we think you're doing it wrong. You know, like, whatever you're doing, you're do, you, you know, we would investigate your umbrella, we would look into the static electricity in your house. I don't, I don't know. We would do all kinds of research, right? What if it kept going? Every year you get struck by lightning. Every year it happens over and over and over again, like clockwork, one in four million every year. It keeps happening. It keeps happening. At what point do we ask the question, there's a conspiracy going on here. There's, there's some sort of design behind the fact that you keep getting struck by lightning. It's not by chance. The chances are just too small. And yet the chances of you getting struck by lightning every year for the rest of your life are far better than that the universe would have come into existence accidentally. Or think about the New York State Lotto. The lottery for last week was 1 in 22,528,737, assuming you played once on one ticket. So that's a little worse than getting struck by lightning twice, two years in a row, right? Once, one year, and then again the next year. Did you hear me? Play, winning the lottery is less likely than getting struck by lightning two years in a row. And yet everyone's doing it, right? What if you knew someone that won the lottery, they bought one ticket, they played one set of numbers, and they won the lottery, and then the next year they did it again, and they won the lottery, and then the third year they did it again, and they did that for 20 years. What do you think about that person? Nobody would say they're just getting lucky. You know, at a certain point of chances, and, and we, we say, look, no, there's, something's rigged. Or to use one, one last example, imagine a firing squad. This is William Lane Craig again. They, he says, they line you up. They're all expert marksmen. You've got 100 of them. You're standing there, blindfolded, and you hear the deafening roar. They shoot. The dust settles. And wouldn't you know it, they've all missed. Every single one of them, a hundred people in the firing squad, they've all missed. Who in the world would say, I am just the luckiest person alive? You wouldn't say, well, of course they all missed. I'm here, and if they hadn't missed, I wouldn't be here to know it. You wouldn't say that. You know what you would say? Someone somewhere paid these guys off. Someone somewhere threatened these guys. Somebody did something to fix it so that they would all miss. Because the chances of even one marksman missing is incredibly small. A hundred? Come on. 
Fred Hoyle, the astrophysicist, said, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics, as well as with chemistry and biology, and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. The probability of life originating at random is so utterly minuscule as to make the random concept absurd. All right, moving on to our next reason for God's existence, the DNA code. I'm not going to spend too much time on this one or the, the next one, but it goes like this. All languages come from a mind, not natural processes. That's number one. Number two, DNA is a language. I think pretty much people know that. DNA is a language. It has certain letters in it that make up the, the, the four strands on the, the, the ladder of the double helix, and it, there's a syntax to it. It's not like they're just random letters, and, and they can be in any order. No, there's a, there's a particular order they need to be in for certain things to happen. And it's an encoding-decoding system, which is why we often call, call it the DNA code, just like we would call uh, computer programming languages code or Morse code. You know, Morse code is, is much simpler than DNA. And Morse code came from what? A mind. Somebody, probably a guy named Morse, came up with that code. Um, so the question that we, we ask is, okay, so if all languages come from a mind and DNA is a language, all biological life requires DNA to exist. Even the smallest little bacterium, the most basic of all life on Earth, runs on DNA. And it's not a simple version. I mean, it's, sim it's simpler than our DNA, but it's, it's not like, oh, there's just like two letters or something. You know, it's, it's still the DNA that we know of. Therefore, conclusion, a non-biological DNA designer exists. If all language comes from a mind and DNA is a language, then DNA comes from a mind. That mind cannot be itself a DNA-driven mind. In other words, it can't be a human being or some sort of animal. It's got to be something other than a carbon-based life form in order to have invented DNA. All right, number four, moral absolutes. So getting away from the science into the realm of ethics. Moral absolutes exist. That's premise one here. I give the example, torturing children for the fun of it is always wrong. Anybody want to disagree? Okay. So we all agree then that <laughs> that's, that's a classic uh, trap right there. Uh, sort of like asking the question, have you stopped beating your wife yet? There's no good answer to that. But uh, yeah, so torturing little children for the fun of it is always wrong. We can all agree that that is a moral absolute. It's, it's always wrong to do that. The question is, well, where do we get absolute? Where do we get this moral from? And you have a few options. You have nature, society, or individuals. But the problem is none of them can supply moral absolutes. If you get your morality from nature, think about nature. Let's, let's just assume atheism for a second. Assume naturalism, the idea that the universe sort of just popped into existence with all these perfect conditions for life, and then life sprung up. And what do we learn from that? What morality would we derive from uh, natural evolution. It would be something like this. If you're stronger, you should have more. It would be something like this. If you're weaker, you should die. That's the morality you would get from, you know, we call it the survival of the fittest. This is a very immoral system, if you think about it at any length. Killing off everyone that's handicapped 
is a natural conclusion based on Darwinism. And yet what society would say, oh, well, that sounds good. Let's just do that. Well, there was one. There was one. They were called Nazis. They were living consistently with their social Darwinist principles. And what, what did we get from the Nazis? Let's think about it. Concentration camps. <laughs> That's the most immoral thing in all of, of, you know, probably of all of human history. So nature itself is not a good source for morality. Just look at how animals treat each other, and you know that that's not a good source for morality. Then you have societies. The problem with societies is you have one society in, in one country that says, okay, this is what we consider to be wrong. Uh, we think that adultery is wrong and that you should be killed if, you, if you're caught and, and if you're convicted of the, the crime of adultery. That's what that one country believes. Okay? There are countries in our world today that believe this. And then you have another country that says, you know what, we think that adultery is wrong, but it's not a crime. You know, it's not a crime. We're not going to punish you for committing adultery. Uh, if you commit adultery, that's your problem, but the government has nothing to do with it. Live your own life. Okay? Who's to say which one of those societies is right? You know, if there's no God, who's to say which one of those societies is right? It's all relative. It's like, okay, well, this is socially constructed. That's socially constructed. Our society you know, thinks it, it's this way and that society thinks it's that way. They're, everything's relative. Nothing's absolute. It's just like, well, uh, preference. Or individuals, too. I can make decisions for my own morality, but that doesn't have any effect on you. If I invent my own morality, how, how does that place a duty on you to live the way I say? Individual constructed morality doesn't work either. So you need an external source to society, nature, and individual people to supply morality. And so you need some sort of moral basis behind it all, a supernatural source for morality. And then number five is miracles. It goes something like this. Miracles are events in which the laws of nature are interrupted by an agent outside of the natural realm. Two, documented miracles have happened. Conclusion, therefore, a miracle causer exists. Now, on naturalism, assuming atheism for a second, on naturalism, coincidences are not miracles. And anything that happens that seems like it's a miracle has to either just be a coincidence, just a, a random uh, coincidence, or some sort of phenomenon that we just don't yet understand. One of those two. G.K. Chesterton said, But my belief that miracles have happened in human history is not a mystical belief at all. I believe in them upon human evidences as I do in the discovery of America. Upon this point, there is a simple logical fact that only requires to be stated and cleared up. Somehow or other, an extraordinary idea has arisen that the disbelievers in miracles consider them coldly and fairly, while believers in miracles accept them only in connection with some dogma. So what Chesterton is saying here is that religious people, we just accept miracles and, and, you know, thinking rational people, they don't accept miracles. He's like, whoa, 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 hold on a second. He continues, the fact is quite the other way. The believers in miracles accept them, rightly or wrongly, because they have evidence for them. The disbelievers in miracles deny them, rightly or wrongly, because they have a doctrine against them. The open, obvious, democratic thing is to believe an old apple woman when she bears testimony to a miracle, just as you believe an old apple woman when she bears testimony to a murder. 
If it comes to human testimony, there is a choking cataract of human testimony in favor of the supernatural. If you reject it, you can only mean one of two things. You reject the peasant story about the ghost either because the man is a peasant or because the story is a ghost story. That is, you either deny the main principle of democracy or you affirm the main principle of materialism, the abstract impossibility of miracle. You have a perfect right to do so, but in that case, you are the dogmatist. It is we Christians who accept all actual evidence. It is you rationalists who refuse actual evidence, being constrained to do so by your creed. But I am not constrained by any creed in the matter, and looking impartially into certain miracles of medieval and modern times, I have come to the conclusion that they occurred. What Chesterton is saying here is that because Christians accept the possibility of miracles, we can be critical when we hear a story about a miracle, and we can weigh it out based on the evidence. Is this person trustworthy? Was there anyone else there that saw this happen? Is there any scientific evidence that can support this, like an x-ray before and after? Right? As Christians, we can actually investigate miracles and accept and reject ones that hold up or, or don't. Whereas if you are an atheist, you have to reject all miracles from the start on the presupposition that miracles are impossible. Who is being dogmatic here? And who's open-minded? That's just a word about miracles. Now, as far as the United States goes, according to a 2016 Gallup poll, 89% believe in God. 2016 Barna found that 66% of American adults believe that God can supernaturally heal people. And 68% have prayed for God to heal someone. And 27% of Americans have experienced a physical healing that could only be explained as a miracle. 65 million people in the United States. It's just one country. And it's a fairly secular-leaning country in some, in some ways and in some areas. Look, if only one of those people actually had a miracle... That would be enough to prove God exists. All we need is one in all of human history. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just too stacked against the other side, I think. Uh, I want to mention this book here. This is uh, Miracles by Eric Metaxas. Uh, he does a great job, especially in the uh, beginning part, explaining this. That's where I got the Chesterton quote from. And he, he documents a whole bunch of miracles that he uh, has firsthand evidence for. That, uh, or I guess secondhand evidence for people he knows and he, he trusts. Uh, and the other book there is by Craig Keener on miracles, the credibility of the New Testament accounts, if you're interested in the subject. All right, on to the last reason for God's existence God experiences. This is my favorite proof of all. Premise I've experienced God. Conclusion Therefore, God exists. That's pretty fast. That's pretty fast. I mean, it was <laughs> not much uh, to think about there. How do you know the wind exists? You feel wind, right? So you know that there's such a thing as wind if you feel wind. It's a direct experience argument. You don't have to go through a whole series of logical steps. How do you know when you're in love? You feel it. You just, you know when you're in love. You, you don't need to say, well, let's see. Have I had any thoughts about this, this other person today? And were they positive? It's not that sort of thing. You just, you just know it or you don't, right? And so, so it is with God experiences. God is personal. According to Matthew chapter 10, you don't need to turn there. I've just got it on the screen here. It says, Jesus says in verse 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? 
Two sparrows are sold for a penny. What is he saying there? Sparrows are cheap. Okay, that's what he's saying. They're inexpensive. You can buy two for a penny. And not one of them, even though their lives are so minuscule and they're just not worth a lot, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. What is that saying about this God that created everything? It's just a really interesting way of, of going about it. Like Jesus is like, oh, you're worth way more than sparrows. And not one of them hits the ground and your father doesn't know. He knows your hairs on your head. So this is saying that God is personal. And so if this claim about God is true, then we should have accounts from people who have experienced God. Now, of course, the, the, the biggest account of all is the resurrection. And that also falls under the classification of a miracle. And we're going to look at the resurrection of Jesus in a, a, a subsequent time together. But I found something really great for this. Really great. Really awesome. Are you ready? This is Blaise Pascal, a Frenchman who was a mathematician, a physicist, inventor, a writer, and a theologian. Total package. Uh, child prodigy, invented, uh, by some accounts, the first computer. Uh, it was a mechanical calculator. It could uh, add, subtract, multiply, and divide six-digit numbers. You know, it's like a no screen, you know, mechanical thing. It would like wheels and levers and stuff. It's awesome. That's Blaise Pascal. Uh, so he died at the age of 39, and nine years after his, he died, a servant, a household servant, found uh, his jacket that he liked to wear, his, his sort of indoor jacket. It had a, a, some sort of padding sewn into it. And the servant got closer and, and noticed that it was something sewn into the coat, and it was parchment. And he, and he removed the parchment from the coat, and inside was a faded sheet of paper, actually two sheets of paper. Uh, one was a copy of the other. One was very messy. And then the second one is just a, a neat copy of the first one that he did. This piece of paper he kept over his heart until the day he died and never told anybody about it. They found it accidentally nine years after he died. And this, this paper comes to a time when he was 31, when he had this amazing God experience. And it's, a, and it's, it's an experience that forever changed him. This is a translation of that paper, okay? This is, this is what he writes. The year of grace, 1654. Monday, 23 November, Feast of St. Clement, Pope and Martyr and others in the Martyrology, the eve of St. Chrysogonus, Martyr and others, from about half past 10 in the evening until about half past midnight. That's, that's his dating of it. And then it begins, fire. And he, when he writes the word fire, it's, it's just sort of a word by itself. I, I can't really zoom in on it here for you, but it's just a word by itself. There's no, no words on the left or on the right of it. It's a new line all by itself, the word fire. And then he says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and intellectuals. Every one of these is on a new line, scrolled out in 17th century French, and random bits are in Latin because he was a you know, scholar. Not, not of the philosophers and the intellectuals. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. The God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. Your God will be my God. 
forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. One finds oneself only by way of the directions taught in the gospel, the grandeur of the human soul. O just Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. I have separated myself from him. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water. My God, will you leave me? May I not be separated from him eternally. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and JC, whom you have sent, Jesus Christ. And then in a little bigger letters the next time, Jesus Christ. I have separated myself from him, renounced him, crucified him. May I never be separated from him. One preserves oneself only by way of the lessons taught in the gospel. Renunciation, total and sweet, and so forth. And never told anybody about it. Died. They found it later. He wrote it down because he never wanted to forget that experience he had with God. And it changed him. After this, he focused on God. He focused on theology. He focused on writing about the Bible. In fact, one of the things he writes is on the, the subject of the hiddenness of God. Sometimes atheists will say, well, how can you believe in God? There's not enough proof, or it's too hard to see that God exists. And uh, so typically Christians will say, well, God doesn't want to give so much evidence that it's coercive, but he wants to give sufficient evidence that for those who have eyes to see, they can see. Blaise Pascal wrote in his Pensee, number 274, wishing to appear openly to those who seek him wholeheartedly and to remain hidden from those who single-mindedly avoid him, God qualified the way he might be known so that he gave visible signs to those who seek him and none to those who do not. There is enough light for those whose only desire is to see and enough darkness for those of the opposite disposition. So that's, we call that the hiddenness of God, that God is not out uh, blaring his existence on every billboard, but that he is evident enough in creation and in other ways as well, like this experience that Pascal had, that he is uh, able to be perceived. All right, so just let me summarize this and then I'll be done here. Each of these different reasons gives you some little snippet about God. Okay, so from the beginning of the universe, we conclude that, that God is eternal, immaterial, timeless, powerful, and a creator. From the fine-tuning for life, we learn that God is the unimaginably intelligent engineer of finely tuned life-permitting conditions. From the DNA code, we learn that God is the original mind behind the encoding-decoding language of DNA that underlies all biological life. From absolute morals, we learn that God is the absolute source of goodness, justice, and morality against which we can judge good from bad. It's because of God's character being so good and moral that we can even have a clue what's, what's good and what's bad. From miracles, we learn that God is the active miracle worker who intervenes in our world. And from God experiences, we learn that God is the personal being who pursues and redeems. And then we look at the scripture and we see all of these attributes of God, that he's merciful, that he's gracious, that he's slow to anger, that he's abounding in steadfast love, abounding in faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Assuming Christianity is true, that this, you know, the Bible is true, and that the statement, I mean, would you, would you look at this God? He's awesome. Assuming Christianity is true, and this God made us, Okay, we wouldn't be surprised if the God who actually exists is the God who most satisfies our souls. 
Well, that concludes part three of this class. If you'd like to leave a comment or ask a question, come on over to restitutio.org. It's restitution with no N dot O-R-G. And I would love to hear what your thoughts are on episode 390, Why Christianity Part 3, God is Real. Uh, Maybe you have some other arguments. Maybe you're an ontological argument fan, and you're just so sad that I didn't include that in my list of arguments. Maybe you think uh, the personal experience argument and the miracles argument are easily collapsible into just really one. Where your thoughts are, I'd love to hear them. Come online and drop your comments on the website. Uh, Speaking of which, a couple of people have been commenting in in various ways. I got an email recently from someone saying that that this class is really helping him, and uh, he's really hopeful that it'll help his daughter to come to a better understanding of the reasons for Christianity and therefore the reason why you should not abandon your faith, especially in those college years where kids are exposed to all kinds of new ideas. That can be a very tough time. Katie Cat Kid came on the site and left the following remarks. She said, I love listening to your podcast. So good and such a blessing. Also, have really liked the apologetic series so far. Well, Katie Cat Kid, we are just warming up, all right? But uh, I'm glad you like it so far. So glad you and Mr. Werewolf, well, that's, that's uh, actually Dr. Werewolf. Uh, he has a PhD, decided to do one, for I had really been wanting to hear apologetics from biblical Unitarians. One question, though, where's the intro music? I miss it, seriously, so please bring it back. Don't tell Mr. Tuggy, once again, that's Dr. Tuggy, Mr. Schlegel, or Mr. Kane, uh, but you have the best intro music. Blessings, Kate. Well, thanks, Kate, for liking my music. I get sick of my music, to be honest. I listen to it more than anyone else. And I've actually had three different theme songs. Of course, the marketers would just tie me up to a post and whip me mercilessly for going off-brand repeatedly. But you know what? That's just a matter of survival from my my own sanity. Uh, and I, I will probably change it again. The message has been honed over time and is on point, restoring authentic Christianity and living it out today. It's simple. It, it encapsulates what we do here at Restitutio. But the sound, I don't know. A lot of the podcasts I listen to, they're just getting rid of that opening music. So I figured, well, I'll just go with the flow on that. But, uh, you know, if if a bunch of you really prefer to have the music in there, I, I am the kind of person that gets really frustrated with delays to getting to the meat of an episode. So for me, if somebody has lengthy music, all kinds of commercials, and then trivial banter for 15 minutes, I don't want to name any specific podcasts out there, but I think you guys have all heard this kind of a thing before. It tends to be the bigger, more popular ones. Uh, for me, that is just infuriating. Like I am listening to a podcast. I want to get to the meat of it. And so it just kind of made sense to cut the music. Uh, but hey, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Come on our Facebook group or come on our site, restitudio.org, and give your comment there. I'm I'm somewhat flexible on this issue. So yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. I also wanted to let you all know a little bit about the ad that we ran on Facebook for this Why Christianity class. Uh, we put a little bit of money behind it and uh, got a bunch of reach and engagement and clicks and it's and so on and so forth but on the ad itself we got 229 comments and that's within one week and i was just 
amazed at how overwhelmingly negative these comments were because the ad that I put out for this class, Why Christianity, exclusively targeted Christians and people that have interest in Bible or theology or apologetics. The, the purpose of this class is not primarily, at least, to win skeptics and atheists to a Christian position. That's not really what we're doing here. What we're doing is trying to equip existing Christians to bolster their faith by helping them to see the good reasons for Christianity, both intellectual and practical. Um, but this particular ad, probably because it's asking the question, why Christianity, question mark, that there was so such an overwhelming number of antagonistic commenters. I just wanted to read out a few to you. I, I deleted probably 10 of the most flamboyant and offensive of the comments that came in uh, and then engaged a little bit. And there were, there were some positive uh, Christian ones as well, but uh, I was just amazed at the level of engagement and argumentation being made on these comments. I want to give you a little flavor of that. And, and I'm not going to say any names here, but uh, one person wrote in saying, the path to all religions are paved with blood. I thought that was an intriguing point that this person made. To that, I replied, the difference with Christianity is that our founder died for others rather than others dying for him. And then another person writes in saying, the pages of history are littered with the charred corpses of the wrong kind of Christians. The minute they gain any temporal power, they start burning off the opposition. Uh, and then another person wrote in, what conclusive evidence is there that someone called Jesus was actually executed, let alone that he s somehow died for us? I mean, this is just amazing to me that anyone in the 21st century with the kind of access to information that we have would question the historical existence of Jesus of Nazareth. We have such good source material for this. To call it into question really just just blows my mind. Um, of course, we have the insiders, the first-gen Christians who believe, who followed him, like uh, Mark, Matthew, Luke, John, Paul, right? But then even outside of the Christian movement, we have Tacitus, Suetonius, Josephus, we've got um, Pliny the Younger, and so on and so forth. I mean, it's just... It's just overwhelming that this person would even have that many sources about his life that people are questioning this, but yet they are questioning it. Another person wrote in, there are many paths to God. Christianity is only one of them, and God doesn't care which one we follow. I think that's an entirely ignorant statement. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be rude by calling it ignorant. What I mean by ignorant is just uninformed. I mean, there's no way in the world that Christianity and Islam, for example, can both be right. Christianity bases our sense of salvation, our, our doctrine of salvation, our soteriology, on the notion that Jesus died for our sins. In some sense, Christians disagree on exactly how that works, of course, but that Jesus died for our sins is absolutely a sine qua non of Christianity. And yet, in Islam... They do not believe Jesus was even crucified. They don't believe that ever happened, that that's not a historical event. These two religions cannot both be right. There's just no way. Or Judaism that claims that Jesus was not the Messiah. He was at best a martyr, a godly person who was executed by the Romans, 
or at worst, a false pretender who got what he deserved. But he's certainly not the Messiah. I mean, to say all religions are equal or that they all equally give you a path to God is just to ignore what the religions are saying. And it's to say, I don't want to study the various options out there. I just want to hand wave them all away and say they're all the same. Another person writes in, yep, Christ's magic sure is rational, pure magic and folklore. And and <laughs> I really wish I could get this particular person to listen to this podcast because they would realize that there's so much depth to the Christian, to Christian scholarship, to Christian study of scripture, to our understanding of theology, and we're using our rational minds to do it. Uh, to claim that Christianity is magic or that Christ used magic is, once again, just a total ignorance of what magic even is in the Bible, but also just in general, and, and how that differs from what Christ was doing. And it also sets up this classic Enlightenment dichotomy between logic and, and supernatural, which I think G.K. Chesterton nicely refuted when I read his quotation out about miracles in our last episode. But the idea is that there's no reason why you couldn't believe in miracles and logic at the same time if, in fact, there is a God who exists who is able to intervene in the natural course of the world. Another one wrote in saying, just look at a couple of Christopher Hitchin videos and then get back to me. And it's like, oh my goodness, another forehead slapping moment. Like, don't you realize that Christopher Hitchin's got his butt handed to him by William Lane Craig? I mean, come on. How is that not, how is that not common knowledge that uh, Christopher Hitchin's, he's a rhetorician. He's somebody who can put together an incredible sentence. He's a polemicist. He can, he can use his words to tear you to pieces and make everyone laugh. Sure, sure. Or he was. He, the late Christopher Hitchens would be dead for some time now. Uh, but he did not bring forth cogent arguments against God's existence. He himself said, Hitchens himself said, that he's an anti-theist, not an atheist, because he hates God. He doesn't believe God doesn't is, exist. He, he, hates, he hates the idea of God. Uh, so... I think that it's just incredible to see how much antagonism there was on this fairly innocent post on my ad. Probably many of you didn't see it because I didn't target our group, our Rest Studio group, or those that like it or anything like that. It was a broader appeal to particular interests. But all the ad really said was, do you struggle to explain why you are a Christian to others in a culture where Christianity is falling more and more out of fashion? It's increasingly important to have confidence in your faith. And then it talks about how this is a free 16-week class. That's all it says. I got like two or three, maybe even four people accusing Christianity at large of being all about the money. Uh, this, is a, this is a classic accusation against Christianity because we've got, what, 1% of 1% of Christian pastors in the United States in particular, is my, my context, that are fabulously wealthy and by absurd mansions and private jets and all this. The other 99.99% of pastors are either middle class or more likely barely scraping by in some sort of parsonage that's not their own, which excludes them from America's number one savings plan, your mortgage on your house, which means that even later on, they're not going to be able to cash out of that situation like most people are when they want to go retire or when they need to take out an equity loan of some sort. And 
this to 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 say that Christianity at large is all about the money is just to be completely ignorant of the vast majority of those who are either volunteering and not getting paid at all part-time or working full-time and hardly scraping by, which is the much greater number than those few who are well-off or you know the ones that make the news that are fabulously wealthy. And so, again, what I'm saying is that these, these criticisms are, are child's play. You know, these are easy to engage with and to refute. And then you have the other side of it, where the Christians are skeptical of the apologetic enterprise. One person wrote, we don't need a 16-week course to explain to people what we are. I don't care what they think or explain to them why I am a Christian. Enough with your courses, your conferences, your... The, the, the uh, language here is very difficult to read. It's actually M-I space Y, and then the word making schemes. So I'm, I'm guessing that is supposed to be your M-I-Y making schemes. Maybe your money-making schemes? I don't know. Uh, so, but the, regardless of this person's unintelligible grammar or lack of typing skills, the the point is representative of a lot of people. I've heard this. I've heard this all throughout my my Christian ministry. Why do you guys need apologetics? Why do you need to study history? Why do you need to uh, use all these big theological words? And wh- why is it that you're complicating things? And why don't you just why don't you just believe it? Why do you care what anyone? I care because Jesus cares. Jesus is the one that told us to go make disciples of all nations. How in the world are you going to do that if somebody says to you, I don't accept your Bible, and now you're going to quote a Bible verse? What, how are you going to do that if you say to them, God loves you, and they say, well, I don't believe in God, and the world seems like a cold, dark place to me where might makes right and luck prevails? What's your, what's your comeback to that? Are you going to say, oh, well, I just don't need to explain myself to you? No, you do. You do have to explain yourself to others. We all do. And that's why it matters so much. If evangelism is planting the seed in the field, apologetics is picking up the rocks that are there so that there can be a potential for growth when the seed goes in. It is a necessary part of the Great Commission that we have in our context today, and in many other contexts as well. Jesus did apologetics. He says, don't believe my words. Believe my deeds. Look at my deeds and, and tell me, based on these miracle, this miracle that I have just done, he would point people to evidence for why they should listen to what he has to say. And his way of life was a real indicator. I think we're moving more and more into that now, but I think the intellectual side of it's still important. And so I'm glad you're here with me, especially if you've listened to me ramble on all the way to the end here. I got a little fired up there, but you know this is exciting stuff. It's exciting to have over you know 300 people comment on an, on an ad that only ran for a week, and they're all people I don't know. Uh, so this is really this is really cool to see. And hey, if you're here because of the the ad, and this is your first Restitutio experience, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad that you're checking this out. That you have the adventurousness of spirit to expose yourself to a ministry that you that you didn't grow up with or that you're not familiar with. And I hope you I hope you stick through this because we're going to cover some really good stuff. And our goal here is not just to equip you like loading bullets into your gun. Our goal here is also to ultimately be able to not just defend yourself, but be able to win people for the Lord and and to help them to taste and see 
that the Lord is good. So that's our goal here today. That's enough commentary. If you'd like to leave your own comment, as I mentioned, you can come on to our website, restitudio.org. If you'd like to support us, you can do that there. We'll see you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.